This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series with some of the world's most interesting and visionary writers and creative icons. My name is Gemma Birrell, and these rambling conversations are with people I personally find fascinating and whose work I love. We'll chat about how they do what they do and somehow manage to balance life and art. And we'll also hear about what they're working on now. Today, I'm thrilled to speak with Emily St. John Mandel. Emily grew up in Canada and now lives in New York. She's written various prize-winning books, including The Singer's Gun, that won the 2014 Prix Mystère de la Critique in France, and Station Eleven, which one reviewer likened to Cormac McCarthy seesawing with Joan Didion. It's a story that moves between the night a particular strain of flu starts spreading like wildfire, and the future 20 years later, following a band of itinerant musicians and Shakespearean actors. It won the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award and the Toronto Book Award, and of course, it's even more eerily prescient now than when it came out in 2014. It's recently shot back onto the bestseller lists again for very good reason. Emily's new novel, The Glass Hotel, is, as The Guardian said, a portrait of everyday obliviousness, a tale of Ponzi schemes, not pestilence. I loved it, and the characters got under my skin, as did the particular sense of foreboding that Emily creates so well. The thing about this novel, and all of Emily's books really, is that they're not just absorbing stories that are beautifully written, there's also so many big, hearty ideas within them, and musings about humanity, about who we are in the dark, and about our dreams and the ghosts that haunt us. And all of this makes her books resonate long after you've put them down. Hello, Emily. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could start off by describing where you are in New York and what it's been like there over the last few months. Uh, Sure, absolutely. So I'm at my home in Brooklyn. For any listeners who happen to be familiar with New York, I'm just south of Park Slope. It's been a very strange few months, which, as I say that, it feels like the understatement of the century. Um, You know, Personally, I've been very fortunate. My husband and I are both employed. Um, We've been healthy. A few of our friends have gotten sick, but nobody very seriously. But it's hard to describe how dire April was in New York City. Just the sense that while our home has remained tranquil, the sense of death being all around us. I know that sounds Mm. melodramatic, but that's that's what it was uh, Mm. during the, the very peak of the pandemic here. So it's gotten better over the summer. Now COVID cases are beginning to rise again. So there's a certain sense of dread here, I would say, at the moment. Mm. And of course, I'm only speaking for myself, but I have also heard that from other people. It's a kind of feeling in the air. So the strange tension of 2020, I was thinking about it earlier today, it would be such a drastic oversimplification to say that it's been a bad year, you know, yeah. because it's also <laughs> been a wonderful year for me personally. You know, I've spent so much time with my daughter. I've spent a lot of time in my garden. There have been moments of true joy. We're in a quarantine pod now with two families, and that's been wonderful. And yet also, what a terrible year. What is that exactly, Emily? What is the quarantine pod? So a quarantine pod, the idea is that if you don't consider it safe to fully come out of lockdown, you don't need to be in lockdown alone. So there are three families plus a nanny who two of the families share. And our agreement is that we don't spend time indoors with anybody who's not in the pod. And and yeah, that's about it. And, you know, just great caution in all aspects of our lives. So we would never go out without wearing masks. And so the idea is that these are people who 
I can invite into my home and I can spend time in their homes with a degree of safety because we're all following the same rules and we're keeping the circle very small. So that's been a real sanity saver. I have a four and a half year old daughter and there's a girl in the pod who's about her age and slightly older boy and a toddler. And it's just really lovely seeing these children who have been very isolated over this year, getting to spend time with other kids. You said that there was that joy of spending time with your daughter. So you're finding that alongside that dread, there have been kind of moments that are actually really positive, like having more time with her. Absolutely. Yeah. I did always spend a fair amount of time with her, but until the world shut down quite abruptly in early March, she was in school five days a week for about six hours a day. And I did often miss her during that time, even though I ostensibly needed the time to work. You can sometimes figure out ways to work in less time. That's been one of the gifts of parenthood, I would say. It's a, maybe gift is a bit of a euphemism sometimes. But, um, you know, one, one does become very efficient, put it that way. <laughs> so how have you been doing it? How have you been wrangling, looking after her with you and your partner working? Has that been difficult or is it, is it something that you've come to gradually and found a good way of working over all of that time? Well, it was quite difficult at first when, so lockdown in New York City started on March 12th and it was pretty severe at first. You know, schools were closed. There was absolutely no option of childcare. Those first weeks were really hard, but then my husband and I, he was able to work from home, which is incredibly fortunate. And we were able to come up with some kind of semblance of balance where we each got a reasonable amount of work done every day. And then at some point over the summer, I think it was early July, I got in touch with a family who became the first family we joined up with in a pod who'd been employing my daughter's former nanny, this wonderful woman who'd taken care of my daughter full time until she was about three. And, you know, I'd known this family for years in kind of a friendly acquaintance kind of a way. And we began talking seriously about joining together in a pod and sharing nanny hours and having our kids get to spend time with another kid. So we began doing that in the summer and we've kept to that schedule. So at this point, I have three full days of childcare every week, which feels incredibly luxurious after, after the spring. It's been fine. I feel incredibly fortunate. I'm very aware that a lot of families in the United States have absolutely no childcare whatsoever. And that's been almost impossible in some cases. Oh, I can't imagine. And have you found that it's actually a time that you can be, you said that you had three days, but you can be productive and that you have, a lot of writers I've spoken to have found that it's really difficult because it's more surreal what's happening in the world rather than where you can go in your imagination. That is a problem. I've been writing science fiction and I realized pretty early on that really the point was to just, just write something that was set as far as possible from my apartment. You know, like Anywhere on earth was too close. It has to be on a moon colony. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's how I dealt with it. Just, you know, how can I transport myself as far away from lockdown as humanly possible? <laughs> I will say it's gotten easier. I think one of the terrible lessons that a lot of us have learned in 2020 is that you do get used to anything. And that's actually kind of horrendous if you think about it. But you can actually get used to living in a failed state during a pandemic, which feels like the American experience these days. And you do actually figure out a way to get some work done and just kind of, yeah, just live alongside this fairly terrible reality. 
I'm really looking forward to talking more about Station Eleven and just the way that you kind of imagined the experience of a flu, of course, and, well, the 20 years later. But first of all, I thought it would be really interesting for everyone to hear more about the beginning of your writing life. And so just going back in time, could you tell us a little bit about yourself as a child? Were you a big reader then? And what were some of those books that you loved? I was a big reader, yeah. I had a very fortunate circumstance as a child, which is that I was homeschooled by hippies. So I had an enormous amount of time to read when I was a kid, and I would spend whole days reading. I remember doing kind of strange things like reading the entire set of encyclopedias, you know, when I was nine or so. Um, I, I came to reading quite late. I really struggled to learn how to read, and I didn't read fluently until I was about eight. But then once it clicked, it really clicked, and I just kind of jumped right in. So I did read voraciously. I would say the books that stay with me the most clearly are the fantasy and science fiction, The Lord of the Rings. There was a wonderful collection of books by Susan Cooper, I believe is a British writer, called The Dark is Rising. And oh, I was obsessed with those. I still think about them all the time. So yeah, those are a couple that, that stay in memory. And, you know, I was homeschooled. The curriculum was a little bit haphazard, but there was a period of time when I was about eight or nine years old when one of the very few requirements of the curriculum was that I had to write something every day. Oh, really? Yeah, it, which was kind of brilliant in retrospect. I'm so glad my mother came up with that. <laughs> so I was in the habit of writing from a really early age. And I don't want to imply that any of it was good. You know, there's little poems about cats and that kind of thing. But it did get me into the habit of it. And it was something that I really loved. Uh, when I was a kid, I was really dead set on becoming a dancer. So I studied ballet really intensively. My post-secondary education was in contemporary dance. I went to a conservatory program in Toronto. And I always thought of writing as a hobby. But then there was a period of time... I was probably about 21 years old when I'd graduated from this top dance program. I danced for a couple of independent choreographers, and I just had this gradual realization that I didn't actually particularly enjoy it anymore. <laughs> it, had, it had somehow along the way come to feel like more of a chore than a pleasure. Mm. So that was when I started to take writing more seriously and just in thinking, well, now what? What comes next? Did you find that there were connections or similarities between dance and writing? There's definitely some connection in terms of the discipline required, where dance requires just an incredible amount of discipline. And writing actually does too, just forcing yourself to, to sit down and do the work. So there is some parallel there. I will also say, I know this always sounds like a joke when I say it, but I think it's true. Writing is so much easier than dancing. You know, so if I blow out my knee tomorrow, I'll still get to be a writer. And that's not true of dancers. So I, I do feel like dance is a really good preparation for writing in that way, just in terms of having some perspective that, you know, there are other jobs that are really a whole lot harder. So when you decided that dance wasn't for you anymore, did you have a clarity that you did want to write and that you wanted to spend your time writing books? Or how did that come? I it was a clarity. Yeah, when I think about it. Around that time, I had a friend who was a novelist. And I think that really helped because that was the first professional writer I'd ever known. And just seeing that as a model, you know, that writing is actually a job and that real people just sit down and write novels, which of course, you know, intellectually. But I think sometimes when you're quite young, it can almost feel like magic, you know, the way books arrive in the world. And yeah, just seeing it's something you can actually do. 
So that gave me some clarity. Also, I had a mountain of student loan debt from school. So it never occurred to me to go back to school to study something else. So it felt like a pretty narrow range of options when I thought about what to do with my life. And yeah, writing was what I turned to. It, um, and had you still been writing while you were dancing regularly? I was, yeah. I, just as a hobby, I rarely finished anything and never showed it to anyone. How did you first get published, Emily? Uh, it took some time. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> so when I had what I thought was a reasonably coherent first draft of my first novel, Last Night in Montreal, I was living in New York City by then. I began looking for an agent. So my method, which I don't actually recommend, and I'm happy to talk about better ways to get agents, but this is how I did it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I just ma- ran a Google search for literary agents in New York City. I came up with a list. I worked my way down this list of names. I was sending out a query letter and three sample chapters to every agent on the list. They would mostly reject it within 48 hours. You know, the rejections would just fly back fast and furious. But about the 13th or 14th agent who I queried (laughs) uh, was this woman, uh, Emily Jacobson at Curtis Brown. And she requested the full manuscript, so I sent it to her. And then she rejected it. But she did so with this really long, very thoughtful editorial letter, which was essentially a list of problems she had with the novel. You know, it was things like, I didn't quite understand why character A did this. I didn't quite understand plot point X. And it was the first substantial feedback on the work that I'd received. So I remember looking at this letter and thinking, well, there's no guarantee of future representation here. But if I were to make these edits, then worst case scenario, I'll have a better book. So I spent about six months revising based on that letter and then queried her again. And this time she took me on as a client. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was so exciting. She was about 85 years old when she took me on. And the reason that's relevant is she had sort of a literally old school way of doing things, which is to say that she sent it out to one publisher at a time, which isn't really done anymore, but I guess it was decades ago. So it took about two years for it to be rejected by every publisher in New York City. (laughs) Oh my goodness, really? Probably some outside the city too. You know, fashions change in literature the same way they change everywhere else. Different things, you know, fall in and out of popularity. And that was a moment when there just was not very much interest at all in books that are more than one genre. And I think that now the opposite is true, which makes it an exciting time to be a reader and a writer. But that was a moment when I was getting a lot of rejection letters along the lines of, we just don't know how we would market this thing. It's detective fiction and it's literary fiction. What shelf do you put it on? So yeah, it took a long time to find a press. How did you continue to be positive about it? Was it hard at that time? Did you ever have that kind of, those doubts in the beginning, which I'm sure a lot of younger writers do have? Uh, I did have doubts. Yeah. I was fairly resigned to the idea that it might not be published, you know, after a year or so of rejection letters. But I very much recommend this, by the way. The way to deal with that, I found, was to work on another project. So the whole time that Last Night in Montreal was getting rejected, I was working on my second novel, The Singer's Gun. And so just having that absorbing fictional world to enter into, I think was really helpful. And yeah, and then eventually Last Night in Montreal did land with a very small publisher called Unbridled Books. And they were great to work with. I stayed with them for three books. 
I absolutely loved that book. I can't imagine that it was rejected. It is such a fantastic read and there's so many big ideas in that alongside your other novels, of course. And one example that I really loved and kind of resonated for me was what you wrote about lost languages earlier in the book and how losing languages is losing ways of existing on earth. Could you give us all a little bit of a taste of this novel and maybe just read a short extract about that? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to read a short extract where a character named Eli, who, if I remember correctly, I think he's getting some kind of a philosophy of languages degree. Um, He's talking about the phenomenon of dying and disappearing languages. And I'm going to embarrass myself terribly here. I have no idea how to pronounce a great many of the foreign words in this section. I'm embarrassed (laughs) to say. So... I apologize from the bottom of my heart if you are from one of these cultures and I'm horribly mispronouncing uh, any of your language here. Um, Okay, so Eli is talking to his girlfriend about this phenomenon of dying and disappearing languages. 3,000 languages destined to vanish. He'd become obsessed with the untranslatable. His idea, and somewhere in this idea was his thesis, if he could only find a way to narrow the focus to one or two languages instead of all of them at once, was that every language on earth contains at least one crucial concept that cannot be translated. Not just a word, but an idea, like the French déjà vu, perfect and crystalline in its native language, otherwise explainable only by entire clumsy foreign paragraphs or not at all. In Yupik, a language spoken by the Inuit along the Bering Sea, there is Alam Yua, a kind of spiritual debt to the natural world or a way of moving through that world with some measure of generosity, of grace, or a way of living that acknowledges the soul of another human being or the soul of a rock or of a piece of driftwood, sometimes translated as soul or as God, but meaning neither. In a Mayan language, Quiche, there is the Nawal, one spiritual essence but separate from the self. One's other, not exactly an alter ego or merely an avatar, but a protective spirit that cannot be summoned. And if you accept this, he told her, this premise that every language holds something that exists in no other tongue, an entity far outweighing the sum of its words, then the loss takes on a staggering weight. It isn't so much a question of losing 3,000 words for everything. There aren't 3,000 words for everything. The speakers of Yupik have no reason to describe tigers in the high Arctic. The speakers of the jungle languages need no words for the northern lights. It isn't even so much about the words. His belief was that these are not just languages we lose in the gloaming, not just 3,000 sets of every word, but 3,000 ways of existing on this earth. Emily, thanks so much for reading that. That was such a beautiful extract. And it's interesting because I find that there's so rarely focus in discussions with writers, there's rarely focus back on early work as well. And I think that it's really interesting for people to read the body of your work, to read the earlier books, to just not forget those earlier ones and always go to the latest, which is wonderful. But there's also this whole backlist of titles that are so rich and rewarding. So thank you for that. Keeping with your early work, how were those initial years as a published writer? And was there a lot of touring? Was it exhilarating or exhausting? How was it? Um, It was a little bit demoralizing, if I'm being absolutely honest. The small press experience is very different from being published by Penguin Random House, you know, as I am at this point in the US and Canada. So I did tour a little bit. And 
I want to be clear that I'm immensely grateful to my publisher in those days. They really did all they could. But with a small press, you know, if you're very lucky, you might sell 3,000 copies, which I think is about what I sold initially. And those tours, you know, it would be a week on the road in the South traveling by Greyhound bus from, you know, Kentucky to wherever. Um, Yeah, it was a little hard scrabble. So that entire time, though, I had a really great day job. I was a part-time administrative assistant in a cancer research lab at the Rockefeller University in New York City. And it's kind of a wonderful institution. It's all science. And I found that really interesting. I have no scientific background, but it was just such a cool environment. A very important consideration for living in the United States, and I've been here for a very long time, but I will never get used to this, is that there's a private healthcare system. So that day job provided me with really good health insurance for me and my husband. And it wasn't quite full time. So it was a really good job. And I was really resigned to being an administrative assistant forever. I would say it really kind of came as the shock of my life when Station Eleven was as successful as it was. It became possible to leave that job. There was a piece as well, like just talking about those early years when you were published, there was a piece that you wrote a long time ago in The Millions about negotiating the publishing journey. And you spoke about the cover of a book and how women's books would look very particular and have a particular style as opposed to men's books. Did you find along that early publishing journey, there was a lot to negotiate in terms of keeping your own vision? Uh, Not a lot, but every now and again, something would come up. I would just be like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm dealing with this. Um, There was a moment when my publisher wanted me to accept a cover for, I think it was The Singer's Gun. It was a woman kind of, it wasn't even a woman, it was just her legs, if I remember correctly, wearing negligee, kind of lying on a bed. That scene isn't in the book. Like, There's no woman in negligee anywhere in the text. It was just so clearly not a cover that would ever be given to a man. So, you know, there have been infuriating moments like that along the way, I have to say. Yeah, that is a real and unfortunate thing in publishing. Does that happen with editing as well? Like are there certain things that you're recommended to change but you have to kind of hold steadfast to your vision of that, for example? Or is that more of a a push and a pull and a kind of give and a take? Yeah, I would say more of the latter. I haven't really encountered any serious negative editorial pressure, I'd say. I've been pretty fortunate. Yeah. Now, it feels like yesterday that I met you in Sydney when you came to (laughs) Sydney Writers Festival, but it was 2015, which is hard to believe because it's such a long time ago. And you came to talk about Station Eleven. And this was the book that really catapulted you into an extra dimension of literary fame, of course, and made your writing much more known around the world. Did things change a lot after that book? Oh, it was incredible. It was like this juggernaut that rolled over my life and nothing was ever the same. (laughs) And I mean that in the most positive way. Um, Yeah, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, I was really okay with the idea that I was always going to be an administrative assistant who published a book every two or three years. The success of Station Eleven was stunning. It was, I tend to think of it in terms of Alice in Wonderland. It's like I stepped through the looking glass into this bizarre new world where people actually read my work. (laughs) I I hope I never get used to it. It still seems a little surreal to me after all these years. It was incredible. It changed everything and it made it possible for me to write full time. And of course, as we were talking about before the interview began, I was secretly pregnant in Sydney. So I quit my day job and then immediately had a baby. So it's not like swaths of extra time opened up, but... 
but still it was it was extraordinary I'm absolutely in awe that you did so much at the festival it was insane <laughs> yeah well thank you you know so much of this stuff is set up really far in advance so yeah I toured until I was seven months pregnant which yeah, it got a little heroin toward the end you know, I would step onto airplanes and the flight attendants would just give me this look, like, please, for the <laughs> love of God, don't have a baby on this plane. <laughs> yeah. And how do you find touring more generally with the book and literary festivals? Are they something that you enjoy or are they just part of the job or are they exhausting? Uh, I would say all of the... Slightly loaded because I was a festival director, of yeah. course. <laughs> right, right, of course. Uh, yeah, neither of us is exactly impartial here. Um, you know, I would say all of the above. It feels like an incredible honor to be able to tour. You know, because I have the perspective of the small press experience, my first three books, I know how extraordinary it is and what a privilege it is to get to go places. And it really is genuinely exciting to get to meet new people and go to places I might not otherwise have had the opportunity to go. So that's the positive part of it. I think it's reasonable to say that it's possible to be grateful for extraordinary circumstances and also miss the people you love. And that was always the hard part for me. I would really miss my husband when I was out on the road. And then of course, you know, once I had a baby, by that point, the really intense promotional tour had stopped. But um, I was still doing a lot of travel, really right up until the pandemic, uh, a lot of paid lectures and onstage conversations for Station Eleven. So being away from my daughter was often quite wrenching. Let's talk about Station Eleven because it really is the time to talk about it in addition to your wonderful new novel, The Glass Hotel. But for the moment, Station Eleven. Now, dazzling is a word, dazzling, and there's many other, you know, absolutely rave reviews about this book. And of course, it seems incredibly prophetic now. Can you tell us a bit about whether the idea of a pandemic and that premise has always been of interest to you or had always been of interest to you? Uh, it really hadn't. So the project with Station Eleven was I was interested in writing about a post-technological society. What does our world look like when all of the fabric of everyday life, you know, what we might loosely term the modern world, if all of that very suddenly disappears and falls away. So that was what I was interested in writing about. But of course that requires kind of an apocalyptic moment to end everything. And you've got to end the world somehow. So I felt like the contenders were really either a pandemic or a nuclear war. With a nuclear war, you've written a political novel, which doesn't always age that well. You know, I, I remember a friend of mine telling me about some sci-fi novel she'd read that was written back in the 70s where there'd been this devastating nuclear war and the combatants were Albania and Brazil. You know, like it just made absolutely no sense in the context <laughs> of current geopolitics. So I, I wanted to write something that hopefully wouldn't age quite that quickly and quite that way. So that was where the pandemic idea came from. And, you know, I, I remember I, uh, I gave a talk on this in Sydney, but the research did lead me down, you know, this kind of unexpectedly fascinating rabbit holes, you know, into the history of pandemics and such. Um, but yeah, it wasn't something that I set out to write about. What's really interesting, rereading it in hindsight, because I've just been rereading it, which has been a delight, and you always find new things when you do reread a book, has been all of those details and the way that you can imagine 
how it is for the people, first of all, when the flu hits and things like the rush on toilet paper. I thought, Emily, how did you know (laughs) that everyone would be obsessed with toilet paper? For example, that's just a very small detail. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot like that. And you are so concretely able to imagine the experience in that kind of early when the flu kind of starts spreading in that period and then onto the period of what it's like 20 years later. And I I think there's such a beauty in what art can offer people in those times of chaos, in those times of difficulty. I think it's, yeah, it's really, it's done so beautifully. It really is. So that's more of a comment. (laughs) (laughs) I'll segue into an actual question. And funnily enough, as you just mentioned, you gave this talk on pandemics at Sydney Writers' Festival and that integrated a lot of research that you did around them. And before this interview, I asked you to resend that to me and I read it and it's so, again, eerily prescient of (laughs) of what's been happening. And there was a few different elements that stood out to me in that talk and I wonder if you could share some more about your thoughts on these particular subjects. First of all, the way that illness and why some people get sick and not others is so unsettling in its randomness. Yes, absolutely. And the way in Station Eleven you kind of can see that culture can be an antidote for that chaos. Illness just has such a terrifying mystery about it, even now. We know so much more than we used to about the mechanisms of cells and bacterial versus virus, viral infections. And we have these miraculous things like antibiotics, but we still don't know why, you know, one person will develop cancer while another won't, or, you know, why one person's illness will respond to treatment while another dies. It's sometimes still completely mysterious in a way that's it's really unsettling. And I have to say, I've, I've certainly felt that, as I'm sure we all have this year, where the incredible scope of the coronavirus, where if you get it, you might be asymptomatic or you might die. And we're still not quite sure why some people will go in one direction or the other. So yeah, I would say that's been brought home fairly vividly for me this year. Another element that you discussed in that piece was that how we always feel like it's the end of the world. In every epoch, we feel like it's the end of the world. And in a way, the world is constantly ending. It's a never-ending process, as you say. That's also an interesting perspective to this particular moment when you look back in time at all of the different pandemics that have happened throughout the world. Absolutely. Yeah. That's an idea that's been with me for a few years. I, I had this really lovely experience with my mother where she visited New York a few years ago. And We went to an exhibition of very old manuscripts and handmade books at the Morgan Library in Manhattan. And there was this one little book that really captured my attention. It was a tiny little beautiful ornate book that had been put together by an 11-year-old Elizabeth I for her stepmother as a New Year's gift. It was an English translation of a French poem. And my mother made a really interesting point, which is that the world in which that book was written, it wasn't actually that long ago. You know, that was probably written about six lifetimes ago. But that world has ended. It's so definitively gone. And you can't point to any grand cataclysm that ended it, but it's gone nonetheless. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about that in terms of much later eras. The world of the 90s has ended. And I think 
the shock of 2020, and I know I keep returning to this theme, but uh, to be honest, we all have PTSD in New York. <laughs> um, you know, the, the shock of 2020 is that the world of late February is gone. It's just been speeded up to such an incredible degree. So that is something I've been thinking about a great deal lately. I think that's a really nice connection as well to your new book, The Glass Hotel, which in a way deals with worlds beginning and ending. I really loved it, Emily. It's just magic and it's kind of got a surreal edge as well as being a book that you can't put down. Could you introduce us to the story and read us a short extract? Oh, sure. I would love to. Um, An issue I've had with The Glass Hotel is that usually with a book, you'll have what we refer to as the elevator pitch. You know, you're in an elevator with somebody. They say, what's your book about? (laughs) In the case of Station Eleven, you say, it's about a traveling Shakespearean theater company in a post-apocalyptic North America. You know, done. Wrapped up. Um, (laughs) In the case of the Glass Hotel, I have been foundering unsuccessfully for an elevator pitch for literally three years. But what I would say is the book circles around two events. One event is a massive Ponzi scheme. No white-collar fraud collapses in New York City. And... Ten years later, a woman disappears from the deck of a container ship. Those two events are related. And I'm going to read you a very brief excerpt here. And let me actually frame this a little bit further. Every character in this book is fictional, but the central crime, the Ponzi scheme, was based on the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, which collapsed in New York City in 2008. I was fascinated by that crime. Partly just the scale of it. That was a $65 billion, with a B, U.S. crime. But partly also, as I mentioned earlier, I used to have that wonderful day job in a cancer research lab. I really liked my coworkers. There were about six or seven staffers uh, of Madoff who went to prison for their role in the crime. And what I found myself thinking about was just the camaraderie that you have with any group of people. You know, you're coming to the office every day, whether it's to publish books or to push cancer research forward or whatever it is. Now, imagine if you were coming to work every weekday to perpetuate a massive crime. I mean, that's just what an insane, intense, wild office dynamic that would be. So I'm going to read a very brief section from chapter 10 called The Office Chorus. And this is actually the first part of the book that I ever started writing, which after several dozen rounds of revision ended up in the middle of the book. Okay, so this is from the perspective of the staff on this crime. We had crossed a line. That much was obvious. But it was difficult to say later exactly where that line had been. Or perhaps we'd all had different lines or crossed the same line at different times. Simone, the new receptionist, didn't even know the line was there until the day before Al-Qaedas was arrested, which is to say the day of the 2008 holiday party when Enrico came around to our desks in the late morning and told us that Al-Qaedas wanted us assembled in the 17th floor conference room at one o'clock. This had never happened before. The arrangement was something we did, not something we talked about. Al-Qaedas came in at 1.15, sat at the head of the table without making eye contact with anyone, and said, we have liquidity problems. There was no air in the room. I've arranged for a loan from the brokerage company, he said. We'll route it through London and record the wire transfers as income from European trading. A knock on the door just then, and Simone came in with the coffee. No one was sure where to look. Simone had only been on the job for three weeks and wasn't party to the arrangement, 
but it was immediately obvious to her that something was amiss. There was a charged quality to the room's internal atmosphere, like the air just before an electrical storm. Only Ron returned her smile. Joelle stared blankly at her. Oscar was looking very fixedly at the legal pad on the table before him, and it seemed to Simone that there were tears in his eyes. Enrico and Harvey were staring into space. Simone finished pouring the coffee and let herself out, closed the door, and waited in the corridor instead of walking away. It seemed to her that no one spoke for an unnaturally long time. Look, Alcatis said finally, we all know what we do here. Later, some of us would pretend that we didn't hear this, but Simone's testimony would echo the accounts of several of us who did hear it. Some of us who pretended not to hear it would also pretend not to know there was a line. I'm as much a victim as Mr. Alcatis's investors, Joelle told a judge, who disagreed and sentenced her to 12 years. But then at the far opposite end of the spectrum was Harvey Alexander, who would agree wholeheartedly with Simone's testimony and go on to confess to things he hadn't even been accused of in a kind of ecstasy of guilt, weepily admitting to padding his expenses and stealing office supplies, while puzzled investigators took notes and tried to gently steer the conversation back to the crime. But for those of us who did hear what Al-Qaeda said in that meeting, those of us who admitted to hearing it, that statement represented the final crossing, or perhaps more accurately, the moment when it was no longer possible to ignore the topography and pretend that the border hadn't already been crossed. Of course we all knew what we did there. We weren't idiots, except for Ron. Thanks, Emily. It's so strong, the chorus, the way that you've written from the collective perspective. It works so effectively. Oh, thank you. One of the things that I really loved about this book was the way that you make us empathise with characters that do morally questionable things. All of the main characters, really, when I start thinking about it, Vincent herself, who is a fascinating character and a great name, I have to say, her brother Paul and, of course, Jonathan, who we were just talking about then, it's so much more interesting not being black and white. And I find that it's quite rare, really, to have such empathy in a book for so many people who were doing questionable things, I think. Well, thank you. I, you know, it's uh, that is an interesting territory for me, you know, thinking about the sort of the moral gray areas. It also partly comes down to character development. You want your characters to be interesting. And a real challenge I had with Jonathan Alcatus is just it was hard to write him and have him not be this two-dimensional cartoon villain. And then with the office chorus, I found I did have a weird kind of sympathy for them because I could imagine how a person with perhaps a somewhat shaky sense of morals could just make a series of bad choices. You know, one opens a door into another and find themselves sort of caught up in this criminal activity. So yeah, it's interesting to me to write those characters. When you were talking before about how it's difficult to find an elevator pitch for the book, that's part of the other thing that I really loved about it, that it has an openness, an expanse, and there's so many kind of elements that are fascinating and that we're following. There's not kind of the clear trajectory of this is what it's about because it's about many different things and different characters. But just in terms of mapping the book out, it's interesting that you start with the end of the book in a sense. But at the beginning, you were saying you wanted that to be the chorus. That was going to be the chorus initially. That was the first bit you wrote. How did you come to actually format it? Was that a difficult process or did it kind of come into being in the writing? 
It was very difficult. I would say the structure of the book was absolutely the hardest editorial element, you know, to get right. Yeah, and that was really what the substance of my editorial notes were. It was just like trying to, yeah, trying to figure out the structure. It was really hard with this book. My original idea was to structure it like David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, which is one of my very favorite novels of all time. And for anybody who hasn't read it, it's got this wonderful symmetrical structure to it where if section, I don't, I don't remember the exact years, you know, it's been a long time since I've read it, but let's say section A is set in the 1650s and section B in 1800 and section C in the 70s. You could map the book out as A, B, C, D, C, B, A, with each section having a different perspective that you then return to, kind of in reverse order. And I've always found that to be so elegant. So I, I tried to replicate that for The Glass Hotel, and it absolutely did not work. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to sustain narrative tension when you've committed yourself by your structure to returning to this set series of points in time. So yeah, I reshuffled this book endlessly and eventually did end up opening it at the ending, which, yeah, it's a strange way to do it. Which actually works really well for that sense of foreboding and that unease that you know that this is going to happen. You know that this major fact in the beginning is going to happen. And so it's really unsettling to kind of constantly be wondering how that's going to happen because you become so invested in that character. There's also a really nice conversation between your books I've found and I really enjoyed the references to Station Eleven with Leon and Miranda reappearing. I wonder if it's hard to let go of certain characters as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's really what it is for me is I just become attached to particular characters. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah, I do. I don't become attached to the whole book. You know, if anything, by the time I've gone through, it feels like a million rounds of edits. That My feeling is really just get this thing off my desk. But I do become attached to characters. And I knew I wanted to use Leon and Miranda again in another work, which posed a pretty obvious logistical challenge, you know, using two characters from Station Eleven, both of whom die in the flu pandemic. So what I tried to set up at the end of Station Eleven was this idea of parallel universes or alternate realities. And the way I did it in Station Eleven is in one of the very final chapters of the book, in a post-apocalyptic section, there are these two characters, Kirsten and August, who are sitting beside the road, and they're playing this game that they've clearly been playing for years, where they just kind of riff on alternate versions of reality. You know, for example, one of them says, imagine a world where the flu pandemic never happened. So I was trying to lay the groundwork for the idea of alternate realities so that I could hopefully recycle a couple of characters in the next book. And then in the next book, The Glass Hotel, I tried to echo that pretty close to the beginning, where in the first chapter about Vincent, she's wandering the streets in Manhattan, and she's kind of playing the same game, but just with herself, just imagining an alternate universe where perhaps the Iraq war hadn't happened, or where, for example, that terrifying new swine flu hadn't been quite so swiftly contained, and perhaps imagine a world where civilization had collapsed. I know that it wasn't completely clear, though, that these books take place in alternate realities. I've read a couple of reviews that were really nice, but made reference to the Glass Hotel happening right before Station Eleven. And perhaps that's fine. Maybe it's inevitable. But if you are just coming to the Glass Hotel, there are no pandemics in it. The, uh, yeah, Station Eleven is not coming for the characters in the Glass Hotel. 
No. <laughs> but also, like, talking more about these echoes throughout your work, which I really enjoy, I think that conversation, as I said, is a really pleasurable thing to kind of pick up for readers. And it also made me think of your first novel last night in Montreal with, in terms of um, the idea of ghost stories and every moment with lots of different possibilities. It made me think of last night in Montreal in the sense of Lilia, who is the main character. She's constantly leaving. She's leaving behind different lives and possibilities and identities. And they're kind of also lives that she's imagining that keep existing. So it's an interesting theme, isn't it? And it feels like it's um, a really rich one. And I have to say for readers, I feel like we really appreciate and enjoy those connections. Well, it's nice to hear. Yeah, it's, uh, I am interested in those ideas, you know, these sort of alternate lives. An idea that I've been fascinated with for years that I go into a great deal in The Glass Hotel is the idea of the counterlife, which is your counterfactual life. So that's the life where you stayed in Paris instead of coming to Australia, you know, or the life where you married a different person or, you know, whatever it was, whatever that juncture was. And it's kind of interesting to imagine that in terms of ghost stories, you know, imagining these shadow lives being played out without you. Uh, you know, for myself, like having trained as a dancer and not having any formal writing training, it's really easy for me to imagine that life. But, you know, there's this counter life where I stayed in Toronto and kept going with the dance and never started writing. And in a weird way, I feel like that's more plausible than the life I'm actually living. So I think that's why the idea is of such interest to me. Moving on to some more general questions about your writing and how you do it. In terms of when you finished a book, who was your first reader? I'm quite curious about the first people who read novels. And particularly today, I received an email. Jamie Attenberg has been doing these kind of great emails. And there was one on craft today. And she was saying that she has different readers for different things. So she might be wanting one reader, you know, one of her friends who really knows one particular area of a city that she's writing about to read the book. And then someone else will be really good at structure. Do you have particular friends who read the books with particular things in mind? Or how do you do that in the early days? You know, I've never really had specialized early readers, but I love that idea that, you know, because of course you do have writer friends who are more focused on structure and others who are more focused on plot. And I think that makes a lot of sense. For myself, it's it's usually about the same readers. Uh, my husband is always my first reader. He's a writer as well, mostly short stories. And I just really trust him to tell me what's wrong with the book, you know, um, because that is the challenge is you show the book to a friend and they say, it's great. It's like, well, no, it isn't. It's the first draft. Like, tell me what's wrong with it. <laughs> you know, I know it's not perfect. Um, yeah, so I always show it to my husband. And then I try to find three people whose opinion I trust. And sometimes I can't. You know, people are busy and you send them the manuscript. They don't get back to you for six months. And I get it. You know, life is hectic. Yeah, for The Glass Hotel, it was my friend Lauren Sarand, who's, you know, it's interesting. She doesn't identify as a writer, but she is actually an incredible writer. Her essays are beautiful. And she has a great sense of taste. And... It was also a novelist of my acquaintance. So, you know, my goal is to show it to three readers before my agent sees it. And then my agent is also a really great reader. You know, she always has really good editorial feedback for me. So it's not a very specialized process, I guess. It's just kind of whoever I can find to read the book who I think has good taste in books. What about what you've been reading recently? What have you loved in particular? Um, I'm going to be doing an event for a Canadian literary festival with Eden Robinson, who's a writer from Canada. 
she wrote a novel called Monkey Beach, which I don't want to say that it was underappreciated because I know it was a big deal when it was published 20 years ago. But she's one of these writers who I think is absolutely brilliant, but nobody I have talked to in the United States has ever heard of her, which I think is really crazy. So I reread Monkey Beach, you know, this novel from 20 years ago. It meant so much to me in my early 20s, and I was just kind of stunned anew by it. It's a wonderful novel. So that was one that really stayed with me. And then another book I read in the last few months that I really loved was a novel called Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. And it's kind of a stunning book. It's a meditation on race. It's intensely moving. He does this incredible thing where the book is hilarious, but also sometimes it just sort of hits you, you know, and moves you to your core. It's very funny and intensely moving and just kind of an amazing piece of work. It's partly written as a screenplay, which is, sounds terrible, but it's incredible. <laughs> so yeah, I've, uh, I've been focusing on fiction lately. And those are two that have stood out. I was thinking about you when I read Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, because of course, looking at Shakespeare's son and potentially kind of imagining how he died in that period of the plague in London. And it was just so fascinating, again, thinking about morphic resonance and thinking about those ideas that are kind of in the ether. And it is a subject that was, it just seems so kind of connected to Station Eleven as well. And some of your thoughts around that? Yeah, absolutely. I haven't read that book which I will at some point. Everybody says it's incredible. But, you know, I know from reading about Shakespeare's life that he died at 11 and was a probable plague victim. And there is a degree of terror in raising a child in a pandemic. I just can't, uh, I can't read about dying children, which is <laughs> what I find. Um, I used to give this lecture on Station 11 where I talked about Hamnet a little bit. And what I found myself returning to was just, you know, the idea of Shakespeare writing Hamlet uh, no more than four years after his son had died. And, you know, you think of Hamlet standing on the parapet, speaking to the ghost of his dead father. Yeah, the idea of father and son being in these separate worlds with a toxicant between them. In the play, of course, Hamlet's father's poisoned. Yeah, it resonates. It does have these sort of echoes of plague in it in a way that's really interesting. So yeah, I will read that book someday. I've heard it's wonderful. It really is. It's it's a really fantastic novel. But it is interesting how things change after you've had a child and certain things you can't read or you can't watch, for example. It's my tolerance is similar, you know, it's really shifted. Yeah, I think I couldn't have written Station 11 after having a child. So, you know, I'm lucky I got to it when I did because (laughs) the window was rapidly closing. Um, Yeah, you know, the things that you can bring yourself to imagine before you have a child are different from the things you can bring yourself to imagine afterwards. And things really move you, don't they, and upset you. I cry at the drop of a hat. I just can't imagine, you know, pain or anything befalling a child. It's really interesting. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're working on at the moment? And you mentioned earlier in the interview that it was science fiction and very far away, which was intriguing. Are you able to tell us anything else about it? (laughs) Right. Uh, Not really. I'm afraid I'll jinx it, but I'll tell you about the TV project I'm working on. That's a fun project. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm working on a television adaptation of The Glass Hotel, which has been, it's been really fun. I, I love writing novels, but after five novels, it's kind of fun to do something completely different. And it's just such a different form and it's so collaborative. So yeah, I've really been enjoying that. How have you been working collaboratively? Like, has someone bought it? Like, where is it at? 
Um, it's been optioned by Lark Productions out of Vancouver, which is something like 51% owned by NBC Universal International. So basically NBC. But yeah, I've been working with this production company. They've been great. And they paired me up with a writer named Semi Chellis, who's phenomenal. She's another Canadian working in Los Angeles. When you go to Los Angeles, by the way, like half the people in television and movies are Canadian. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> but um, yeah, another Canadian. She was on Mad Men for years. That was, yeah, that was, uh, that was her job for a long time. And she just has a deep knowledge of how to write for television, you know, how to structure an episode, how to structure a season and a series, which I was completely at sea when I started trying to figure out how to do those things a year or so ago. Was this the first time you'd written for the screen? It was, yeah. And it's just a completely different form. I have to say, it gave me a new respect for what TV and film writers do in adaptations. Whenever a book is translated to screen, there are always people saying, well, it's completely different from the book. Well, yeah, because that genre has completely different dramatic requirements. You know, it kind of has to be different from the book. So that was kind of fascinating to me to just figure out how to translate the story into a completely different form. And something I really enjoyed about it is that, you know, just the way I write, I never write from an outline. So I always feel when I get to the end of a novel that there were probably 12 different directions I could have gone in and had 12 completely different books. And it's fun writing something that feels like almost like a parallel of the novel where, you know, you do get the opportunity to go in completely different directions and somehow stay true to the story. You don't ever feel kind of that it's very difficult to leave certain scenes behind or get rid of certain elements of the novel? Is that not an issue? It's not an issue. No, I've always been almost pathologically flexible with that kind of thing. It's like, oh, you think that should go? Okay, sure. <laughs> I just uh, I just feel like I have no objectivity whatsoever with my work. So that's how I am in the editorial process with the novel. And that's also how I've been in the screen adaptation. But it sounds like there's a real freedom in that as well. Absolutely. You can yeah. play. Yeah, you can't take it too seriously. Can you tell us something about you that we might not know, Emily, perhaps something you're particularly passionate or curious about? Uh, sure. Um, I'm pretty passionate about gardening. I, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm any kind of an expert or master gardener, but I spend much more time thinking about aphids than I'd like to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and my husband and I bought this house in Brooklyn uh, years ago. And it always needed an incredible amount of work. It was one of those incredibly shoddy, fast constructions that went up in you know, the early O's. So we knew we'd have to put a ton of work into it, and we have. But the reason we bought it is it has uh, three really kind of incredible rooftop terraces, which I've turned into gardens. So I have these container gardens, you know, four stories up. And you know, that, that does mean that I've carted an incredible number of things up four flights of stairs, but <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a magical space and I spend a lot of time. Vegetable flowers, can you describe it? Uh, yeah, sure. I've got, I've got a lot of trees in large containers, uh, maple trees, because they just kind of appear out of nowhere and they're easy to cultivate. Uh, apple trees, I've got euonymus bushes. I've got a crepe myrtle, which is a really beautiful tree that I think is native to the southern United States that blooms at the very end of summer. I've got a grapevine in a huge container, and I'm training it to grow up the railings of a spiral staircase. Uh, yeah, a, a lot of flowers. It's really lovely. So that's been a real pleasure in my life. And um, 
you know, I hate to bring everything back to the coronavirus, but in the uh, earlier days of lockdown, when it wasn't really clear whether it was safe to be outside very much and, you know, what was safe and what wasn't, um, we spent an incredible amount of time in the garden instead of going to the park. So yeah, it, it's been important this year. And your daughter's starting to garden, I imagine? She is. Yeah. She has lots of snail friends, as she calls them. So yeah, she, uh, she talks to the snails that come on. Oh, does she? It's lovely. Yeah. Anyway, thanks so much, Emily. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. And I really hope that our paths cross again sometime soon. And for everyone listening, do make sure that you run out to buy Emily's books or order them online from your local independent bookshop. The new book, The Glass Hotel, is magnificent and it's really superb and of course the very timely station 11 and do not forget her earlier novels that are really fantastic thank you sorry that was kind of a strangely abrupt ending (laughs) (laughs) that's quite all right (laughs) 